We are here to celebrate this morning the greatness of God, are we not? Thank you, praise team, for leading us in that reminder. That's what we've been doing all morning in our prayers, in our song. We've been proclaiming how worthy God is, how great he is. And that's what we continue now as we open up his word. We come to his word with a sense of expectancy, knowing he is worthy of praise and worthy of us learning more about him. It's all our worship to the Lord. I want you to find Ephesians chapter 6 in your copy of God's Word or in the Bible app on your phone. Last week we began the final section of Paul's letter to the people in Ephesus and to us. And as we began that last week in these final words that he gives to the people there, he addresses why it's so hard to live out everything he's been saying. He's shown us this beauty of who we are in Christ and how we're to live because of it. And now he addresses in his last exhortations in the book why it is so hard for us to practically live out all that he's been telling us to do. What we saw last week, he showed us that there is a very real enemy who opposes us. So the reason is so difficult to live out our Christian faith in our daily lives is there is a very real enemy who works to oppose us. He's known as the devil. That's the New Testament term, or Satan. That's the Old Testament term. Both devil and Satan simply mean the adversary, the accuser. They're both the, the Greek and the Hebrew equivalent words for the same term. And we saw last week, he's a very real, very active being who strategizes, who works hard to destroy us. And we had that sobering check last week that the enemy has a strategy for each one of us to tempt us, to try to divide us, to try to create doubt in our mind. He's working hard with a plan to try to destroy our homes, our church, and even this city. That was the bad news, but Paul didn't leave us last week on the note of bad news. He gave us a lot of hope. He gave us good news as well. And the hope he gave us that we saw last week is the enemy's strategies do not have to work. God is bigger, God is stronger, and God gives us his strength. The hope for us in overcoming Satan's attacks on us is not ourselves, is not our self-will, is not determination. It is God giving us his very strength so we can fight the battles that we find ourselves in as we live out the Christian life. Now, last week as we saw this, there was an interesting image that Paul gave to us that he's going to expound on this morning. Now, I want you to see that. I want to show you on the screen, just review from last week, this image that Paul gave us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He said, Finally, be strong in the Lord... In the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, I told you last week we were going to come back to that idea of the armor of God, because Paul is going to expand that in the verses this morning. What in the world does Paul mean when he talks about the armor of God? Now, when we hear the armor of God, it creates all sorts of crazy images in our mind. I want you to see one. If this is typically, if you see a series on the armor of God, you will see a graphic, something like this. What are we talking about? We're obviously not talking about physical armor. If that was the case, we're all in trouble because none of us came in this morning in physical armor. If you had come in, our security team would have already had a chat with you probably before you made it into the sanctuary this morning. So we're not talking about physical armor. We're not talking about wearing metal like this. We're not talking about metal breastplates and stuff like that. What are we talking about when it describes for us the armor of God? Well, because we don't physically wear it, some people go a wrong direction with this and make it very mystical. They see it as actually like a term of prayer, like today, God, I'm putting on my breastplate, today I'm holding up my shield, and they kind of mystify it, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. The more common approach to the armor of God, but I think it's also missing the mark of what Paul's talking about, is to say the armor of God just represents your holiness, it represents your efforts. And you'll hear it commonly taught that the armor of God is the choices that you make to be truthful, and the choices you make to have faith, and the choices that you make to be holy, those are what are going to defeat Satan. And friends, that's really popular, but it's really dangerous. It's really popular today because we're a culture of self-help. And a culture of self-help loves to hear that. You can beat Satan by your holiness. You can beat Satan by being truthful. You can do it. And our culture loves and kind of grabs onto that idea because it's an empowerment thing. 
But it also is an empowerment thing. Our culture loves empowerment. To be told, you can beat the enemy yourself makes people feel good about themselves. And so it sells a lot of books. It sells a lot of audio on this. People love to hear that. But friends, I don't think that's what this is all about. That's not what Paul is trying to show us in the armor of God. In fact, I believe it has very little to do with what we do. What is the armor of God then? Well, I want us to see that from God's Word. So let's come to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 13. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. Be looking for what is the armor of God really all about. Starting in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We're going to pause right there for our reading. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. God, I pray this morning that you would bring clarity to this text, that you would give us understanding. And God, I pray this morning, we just sung about how great you are. God, I pray as we look at the armor of God, we would see with new eyes how great you really are and how that is our hope, not us, but in you. And so, God, I pray that you would be magnified and lifted high today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what is the armor of God? Well, I want to start with kind of two parts of our main idea today. Let's start with what it is not. The armor of God, first of all, is not our efforts. I want to be really clear on this, friends. The armor of God is not our efforts. It's easy for us in our culture to look at these commands like stand and stand firm, and we look at words like truth and righteousness and readiness and faith and go, yes, I'm going to do that and defeat the enemy. I want to give us a reality check. Brian Chappell, who I love to read about Ephesians, he said this. He said, if my only armor in the battle against Satan is my sufficiency, then I am doomed. I am no match for him. If my only armor in the battle against Satan is my sufficiency, then I am doomed. I am no match for him. And friends, when you look at the totality of Scripture, that is in fact true. You look at how Adam and Eve fell to Satan's schemes. You look at King David, a man after God's own heart, how he fell to Satan's schemes. You look at Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who fell to Satan's schemes. You look at Samson, the strongest man who ever lived, he fell to Satan's schemes. If all our only hope is our sufficiency, friends, if that's what we rely on, we will fall short. It will not suffice. So what then is the armor? It's not our efforts. Rather, this is what I believe it is. The armor of God is not our efforts. It is a call to remember what God has done for us. The armor of God is not my efforts, not my striving. It's a call to remember what God has done for us. And we carry on what Brian Chappell said. He said, if my only armor in the battle against Satan is my sufficiency, then I am doomed. I am no match for him, but my God is. I am no match for Satan, but my God is. Safeguarded by God's armor, I can stand against the adversary. And friends, that is our hope. It's not in us trying harder. It's not us doing things. Our hope to withstand Satan's attack is God himself. And so how does God safeguard us with his armor? What does this look like for God to safeguard us? Well, go back to verse 13 here. I want you to see how I'm convinced that the armor of God is what God does for us, not ourselves. Look back at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of yourselves. Nope, okay, that's not right, is it? Okay, therefore, take up the whole armor of your determination. No, well, let, me, let me spiritualize it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of your pursuit of holiness. Nope. Therefore, take up the whole armor of your pursuit of your quiet times and daily devotional life. That's not what it says. Take up the whole armor of who? Of God. It belongs to God. It is God's armor. That word av is so important. It's God's armor. It belongs to him. And he gives something 
to us here. And what has he given to us? There's so much. That's what all of Ephesians has been about. That's why this comes to the end. It's a summary of all that God has done for us. How remembering what God has done for us is what gives us strength in the midst of the battle. What has God done for us? Well, there's six different pieces of armor here. Six different reminders, if you will, of what God has done for us. And when we remember these truths that we've already seen throughout the whole book of Ephesians, we find victory over Satan's schemes. So let's look at these six pieces of armor The six reminders of what God has done for us. Go back to verse 14. What is the first reminder we see here? The first thing that it says God has done for us. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. We are told to stand having received something. We don't stand to get something. We stand because something has already happened, because we already have something. Here we withstand Satan's attacks because we already have truth. Well, what is truth here? Well, flip back to a few pages to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Again, I don't think this is us speaking truthfully. I think this is what God has done for us. Notice the equating of words here in verse 13 in Ephesians 1. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul equates truth with the gospel. What is the belt of truth? It's not my efforts of truthfulness. It is the gospel that we believe. It is the good news that we who were enemies of God have been reconciled and restored to a right relationship with him. That we who were far off have been brought near and now have peace with God. And so when Satan is attacking us, the foundation of our victory is not my efforts to be more truthful. The foundation of victory comes when we remember the gospel that I am a child of God. Not because of anything I have done but because of what God has done for me. I have peace with God regardless of what is being thrown at me by the enemy. And remember, the gospel doesn't stop there. It means that I now have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. When the enemy is attacking, we're guarded by remembering the gospel here. Friends, I am convinced that so many of our sin struggles, so many of the temptations and the doubts we face go back to one chief lie from the enemy. And that's the lie the enemy somehow whispers to us that we are not well provided for children of God. I'm convinced that most of our struggles go back to hearing a lie from the enemy that we are not well provided for children of God. Because if you think about so much of the temptations we face, so much of when we're tempted to, to wander from the path God has given us, it's because something is held out there that we're being shown that, or believing that, that we've been denied. Oh, you deserve that. Oh, I can't believe God's withheld that from you. Or why hasn't God healed that? Or why hasn't God given you that? And we begin to wander off the path because we hear these lies that God hasn't provided for us all that we need. I'm convinced most of our struggles come from that. Therefore, the very first thing that Paul tells us here, when we are being attacked from the enemy, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember all the blessings we have in Christ, who we are in God. And that will counter Satan's lie, and it will hold us tightly. Notice back here in verse 14 the image that we have of it holding us. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What does a belt do? It holds everything in place. What do we need to hold everything in our life in place is to remember the gospel, to remember our identity in Christ, to remember how God is holding us on this. Unless we think it's our efforts, we need to go back to the question of why did Paul pick armor in the first place to describe these things? I mean, it's kind of confusing, isn't it? Why is he talking about belts and shoes and all these things? Well, the common answer is, well, Paul's probably sitting in his, in his being under guard from a Roman soldier, and he's looking at the Roman soldier in all of his armor going, oh, yeah, yeah, belt, breastplate, shield, I got it. I don't think that's what he's doing here, though that's the most popular view. I am convinced that every piece of armor, he's actually pointing us back to Isaiah. Because all these pieces of armor, all but one, are descriptions of the Messiah in Isaiah. They're pointing us back 
to Christ. And this prophecy written 700 years before Christ came to prepare God's people for who the Messiah would be, it describes the Messiah in particular terms. Do you see it on the screen? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. And notice who wears the belt. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness, truthfulness, will be the belt of his loins. Here in Isaiah chapter 11, there's a prophecy about what the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the coming rescuer, who is Christ, what he would be like, and he would wear a belt of faithfulness, a belt of truthfulness. Friends, our hope against the enemy is not that you and I are truthful, because the next time a lie comes out of our mouth, the next time we don't say something correctly, our armor's down and we're going to be just destroyed by the enemy. But our hope is that Christ wore the belt of truth because God himself is truth, and he is the one who goes and fights the enemy on our behalf. And he reminds us that he is the one who's defeated Satan. He is the one who is now reminding us of the gospel. So God gives us the gospel. He gives us the truth of who he is to help us stand against the enemy. That's amazing, but that's not all he gives us. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Look back at verse number 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, now the second piece of armor, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now what does it mean that we have a breastplate of righteousness? How does God giving us righteousness help us? Well, what do we mean by that? Once you see 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it's a powerful reminder in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 of what has been done for us. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, we say it a good bit, but we need to remind us, when Christ died, yes, he took our sins, but too often we stop there. When Christ died, not only did our sins get put on Jesus, but all of Jesus' righteousness got put on us. We have inherited a righteousness, not our own, that comes from him. So when God sees us, he doesn't just see, oh, we're forgiven. He sees Jesus when the Father looks at us. He sees all of Christ's perfections and righteousness and good deeds. He looks at us and he sees that because he sees us covered with Christ's righteousness. Again, friends, if our hope in the armor of God is that I'm going to be righteous, one wrong thought, our armor's gone and we are in trouble and we'll be defeated by the enemy. But that's not our hope. Our hope is that Christ is our righteousness. Again, the armor imagery is coming from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. Notice who's the one who has the breastplate of righteousness. He, this is Jesus, the coming Messiah that they're looking for. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. When Isaiah's prophesying in 700 years the Messiah's coming, and here's what he's going to be like, he's going to himself wear the breastplate of righteousness because he himself will be righteous, and he will do what we cannot do. He will go defeat the enemy for us because of what he does on the cross. The righteous sacrifice goes and dies in our place so he can give us his righteousness. Think about how this gives us victory. When the enemy tempts us and when the enemy reminds us of our guilt and our shame, remember his name, Satan or devil, means accuser. He tempts us and he accuses us. You're worthless. How can you be a child of God? How can you follow God when you've done all of this? We don't have to listen to his lies because God doesn't listen to them. When Satan tries to stand before God and bring accusations, they're silenced. It'll be a whole sermon for another day, but sometime I'd encourage you to read Zechariah chapter 3. Because Satan stands before God to bring accusations against God's people. And in my summary form, God bless you, tells him to shut up. Now, that's not the text of what the Bible says, but that's basically what happens there. Because God will not entertain accusations against his people. When he looks at his people, they're covered with Christ's righteousness. Friends, if God doesn't listen to Satan's accusations against us, why should we? And so the victory comes not by us trying to be righteous. The victory comes by us remembering that we have a righteousness not our own. And we can approach God because we're covered with Christ's 
righteousness. So when victory comes, we remember the truth of the gospel. It comes and we remember that we have Christ's righteousness. But there's a third piece of the armor here that also comes from the Lord. Look at verse 15. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, your first thought may be that seems really random. We've just gone from a belt and a shield. Now we're talking about shoes of readiness. What in the world is this all about? Well, let me remind us, some of Satan's attacks are very direct. They're very obvious. But some of Satan's attacks are very subtle. And I think this is addressing one of Satan's subtle attacks against us that has worked so well, particularly in the American church. If you look at Christianity in the United States today, Satan has done a really, really good job of getting us scrolling through our phones and staring at the TV aimlessly and not pursuing God. Satan's done a really good job of getting us living for the American dream, living for financial success, living for all the things this world offers, and not pursuing God's plan for our life. And when we're doing those things, he's got us right where he wants us. So what's this text all about? Well, it's reminding us what God has called us to do, that our salvation is not for me to sit at home and be comfortable. Our salvation is for us to pursue God and to make him known. Go back to read verse 15 with that in view. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Readiness literally means preparedness. We're being prepared for something. So why the imagery of shoes? Well, again, let's go back to Isaiah. This is describing Christ. Isaiah chapter 52 Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, says his eye on your God reigns. So here's our very easy Sunday school answer. Who is the one who brought us the good news? Okay, who brought us the good news? Jesus. Yeah, you can get it right there on that one. Jesus brought us the good news. He is the one who has the beautiful feet, who brought us the news of salvation that we had no hope to find in of ourselves. But lest we think it's just about us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. What does Christ call us to do? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Now, we like that. That's what he's done for us. Now, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And again, too often, friends, we stop here. And notice the next line. And he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to who? Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Then verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through who? Through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Friends, Satan has done a really good job in the American church convincing us that we don't have a job to do in taking the gospel. We spend hours in entertainment, hours pursuing the American dream in our lives, missing the fact that we have a calling from God, not just to have received reconciliation, but to now take that message of reconciliation to others. And the victory against the scheme of the enemy comes when we remember that God has given us the gospel, but is not supposed to stop with us, that God has given us the gospel to take to others. And as God stirs our hearts in that and moves us from wasting our lives on social media and wasting our lives in entertainment and pushes us to begin to make Christ known, the enemy's strategies are defeated. Victory comes when we remember what God has done for us and the gospel and giving us righteousness, what he's called us to do. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He's going to highlight these same ideas in different terms. Look at verse 16, the fourth piece of the armor. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Not only has God given us everything else we've just mentioned, God gives us faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is a trust in God. It is confidence in God's character, confidence in God's promises. Again, in our culture, people like to think that somehow the faith is what we contribute and then God does his part. But the Bible is pretty clear that even our faith is a gift 
from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 that we looked at many months ago in our journey through Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own. What does this refer to? Well, in the Greek tenses there, this refers to the whole phrase before it. This includes the grace and the faith. Even the faith we have is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no man can boast. Because we can't say to anyone, well, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ because I did it. No, it's all his grace gift to us. Even our faith is a gift from God. And here, the faith that God has given to us protects us from the enemy's attacks. How so? Let me remind us, faith is not just a point in time. It's not just, I prayed the prayer, I'm in the kingdom. Faith is an ongoing attitude of our heart that trusts God. Faith is an ongoing trusting in the character and promises of God day by day. The faith that saves us is the same faith that sustains us. And when the enemy throws lies at us about the character of God or how God has provided for us or whatever it is, our faith is what is a shield that lets us run back to the promises of God and believe the truth and counter the lies of the enemy. So, friends, when the enemy is throwing lies at us, whether it's doubt or temptations or whatever it is, we find victory not by trying hard. We find victory when we remember the gospel. Remember that we have a righteousness that's come from Christ. Remember that God has called us to not live for self, but to make him known. We remember that we have a faith that will shield us. But there's more, another piece of armor. Number five, look at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. God's given us a helmet of salvation. What's salvation? To be saved means to be rescued from something. What are we rescued from? We're rescued from the enemy. The Bible describes in very clear terms that we are bound to the enemy, that we are slaves to the enemy. We're slaves to our sinful desires, and we are bound to the enemy. And God rescues us from our living for self and rescues us from being bound to the enemy as his gift to us. He rescues us from those things, and it protects us. And so when the enemy lies to us about our standing before God, the helmet is what protects us, not that I just choose positive thoughts for the day and I'll be okay. I remember who I am in Christ. Again, he's pulling from Isaiah here to help us remember this. Isaiah 59, 17, we looked at just a minute ago. We're going to see Isaiah 59, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Friends, it's not my efforts or your efforts, it's the helmet. Christ himself wore the helmet. This whole picture here, and I notice the rest of this verse, he has garments of vengeance for clothing. He's wrapped himself in zeal. What is this describing? This is describing Christ going to battle to rescue his people. Christ as the divine warrior who is rescuing us. And his, he is the one wearing the helmet of salvation. We remember that he has rescued us, that he fought on our behalf. Then we find victory. Friends, this, we need to be so clear on this. We do not go fight Satan ourselves. We're not called to go fight Satan to get free. God is the one who fights Satan. And we believe in what God has done for us. And then Paul takes all these things and wraps it up in the last piece of armor here. That, I believe, is a summary of all of them. Look at verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and, here's a summary of all, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He has given us the last piece of armor is His Word. Friends, the only way we can know the truth of the gospel, the only way we can know that we have a righteousness from God, the only way we can know that God wants His appeal to go through us, the only way we can know what faith is, the only way we can know what salvation is, is if we go back to the Word of God, because God has revealed it to us. He calls it here the sword of the Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit inspired the words of Scripture. The Holy Spirit illumines them so we can understand them. The Holy Spirit reminds us of them so we do not fall. And so all this armor together is us being reminded from the Word of God what God has done for us. Look at how it's described in 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. This is just a beautiful picture for us. 
John's writing, says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I love this part. I write to you young men because you are strong. We must not stop there. Why are they strong? And the word of God abides in you. Strength is equated with the word of God abiding in us. And when that, we have the strength that comes not from self-effort, not from our own pursuit of holiness, not from our own quiet times, but when strength comes from the word of God living within us, what happens? You have overcome the evil one. Friends, the armor of God is us taking the word of God that makes us strong and makes us victorious by reminding us of who God is and what he has done for us. Everything we need to not fall away is from God. Now that raises a question. Do we have any responsibility then? If the armor is what God has done, what is our responsibility? Well, yes, we do have a responsibility. Go back to Ephesians 6. Notice the commands. These are imperatives in the Greek tense that we have here. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. We're commanded to take it up. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the Spirit. So there's a command given to us. Yes, the armor is what God has done for us, but we're told to take it. What does it mean to take something? It means to receive it. We don't manufacture the armor. We pick it up. We receive what God has done for us. This is simply a command for us to receive God's provision, to us remember what God has done for us. Now, what does that practically look like? How do we practically take up this imagery into our lives? Well, think about all the other put on the same idea as taking up these scene in Ephesians. We've been called to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but we can't do that ourselves. All throughout, we've been called to put on these things that we can't do ourselves. How do we take those up? We simply ask God for it. We craft Him a dependency. I can't fill myself with the Holy Spirit, but I say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit, and God answers. Same idea here. How do we take up the armor of God? How do we remember these truths? We cry out to God. When we're in the middle of a battle, we kind of say, God, I am struggling now. The enemy's throwing doubt at me. I'm feeling tempted here. I'm struggling with his attacks. I can't stand help. And we cry out to God for the help that we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ and to be anchored in our identity in Christ, all of what Ephesians 1 through 3 was about. And when we do that, God answers. Look at what happened when God answers. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that... So we cry out to God, asking him to remind us of this truth. What happens? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The imagery of standing is powerful here, friends. If we're not standing, we've fallen down. If we've fallen down, we've been defeated. It's an image for us that Satan's strategies don't have to work against us. We can stand. We can be victorious even when attacked. Same idea in verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So when the enemy throws doubt to you, the enemy throws temptation at you, whatever else, those don't have to work on you because of what Christ has done for you. Friends, the armor of God is not our efforts. It is a call to remember what God has done for us. So friends, when you feel like your life is about to fall apart because you're being attacked by the enemy, cry to God. He will remind you of the gospel, of who you are in Christ. And he will hold you securely in the midst of the chaos of life. He will hold you like a belt by reminding you of the gospel message he's brought to you. When you've sinned and you feel defeated because of sin in your life, and the enemy is lying to you, telling you you're worthless, or telling you you'll never change, or God can't love someone like you, you cry to God in desperation, and he will give you forgiveness and remind you that he doesn't just forgive you, he covers you with Christ's righteousness. And being reminded of Christ's righteousness will be like a breastplate. They'll guard your heart from hitting, having the lies of the enemy take root about the sin in your life. When you've lost your way and you realize you're living for yourself and not for God, following the things of the world, you cry out to God and ask him for help, and he will realign your priorities. It'll be like new shoes on you, giving you a new direction to help you live for him 
and not for self. When you're at a place in life where something is tough and you're doubting God's goodness and doubting, doubting God's promises and doubting God's provision, the enemy is questioning the goodness of God in your life. You cry to God and he will give you faith to believe regardless of your circumstances. He will remind you of his faithfulness and he will shield you. It will be like a shield to you to protect you, your mind from going down wrong paths. Friends, when you realize that you're not walking according to God's word and you're falling into temptation, you cry to God and he will remind you that your salvation is secure, not because of you, but because of what he has done. And he will give you a new desire to live out that salvation very practically. And all these things, friends, if we cry to God, he will point us back to his word and show us imprint before, his, before our eyes here who he is, who we are, and the grace upon grace upon grace that we need to live for him. Friends, the armor of God is not our efforts. It is a call to remember what God has done for us. So I want to ask you, friends, are you remembering what God has done for you? Are you taking time every day to reflect on the gospel message? Are you taking time each day to remember Christ's righteousness covering you? Are you taking time each day to reflect on your faith and salvation, all that God has done for you? Are you taking time each day to run back to the word of God because you want to know him who has created you? And friends, when the attacks come, are you experiencing God's grace upon grace to walk victorious? Not because you're trying hard, not because you have determination, but because you're so anchored in what God has done for you. The lies of the enemy have no place in your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful for your word, and we're grateful for your grace. Or that the call to live out our Christian life is not us try harder. God, we would all fall so short, and we all have fallen short when we've tried that in our own strength. God, we're thankful for grace upon grace upon grace, Lord, that gives us strength where we couldn't have strength in our own abilities. And we're thankful for your grace that reminds us of the promises of your word. We're thankful for your grace that reminds us of who you are and what you've done for us. We're thankful for your grace that anchors us in understanding who we are in Christ, understanding we're being held by the Father's hands and that no one can take us out of your hands. Lord, I pray today that you would re-anchor us in your grace and your kindness. God, that you would free us from self-efforts that leave us falling flat on our face in the battle. And Lord, for that brother or sister today who is struggling with some sin stronghold, they just feel like they've not been able to break. God, I pray today they would quit striving in their own strength. God, they would look to you and you would remind them so much of who they are in Christ that they wouldn't want to run after that anymore. I pray for the person who's struggling in a relationship, whether it's a broken marriage or some other division within their home, that today they would quit striving in their own strength. And they would look to you, God, and they would find how your reminders of who they are in Christ might give them fresh energy and fresh approach to whatever those challenging relationships are. But I don't know what each person is going through, but God, you do. So Lord, I pray that today for whatever trial, whatever difficulty, whatever attack, whatever temptation, whatever doubt anyone is struggling with today, that your Holy Spirit might breathe new life into them, new strength for the battles, Father, not to try in their own strength, but to try to just pursue you, see what you do. And Lord, we will give you all the praise for what you'll do. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing about God's amazing grace here?